So just in case this is a, an unknown situation, having a, uh, this kind of chanting before a Dhamma talk, let me just explain what it's about. So the tradition that I come from is the, is the forest tradition. And this um, opportunity of speaking on Dhamma is considered a really um, important thing to do in the right way. So, like many people, I have no shortage of views and opinions. (laughs) But what this chanting does for me is remind me that this is a special occasion for me to allow the Dhamma to come forward rather than just my views and opinions. So, at the beginning of any kind of formal talk, Um, So even though people feel quite relaxed, this is a a kind of a formal talk, then I would do this chanting as a way of both signaling to myself as well as signaling to everybody who's in the space listening to me that this is a time where, you know, if we listen attentively, then it's possible that there can be something of value that can happen. So it signals to me that, you know, this is not a time for, for me to share my views and opinions. It's a time for me to talk about things from um, my deepest understanding. And even though I can use my own personal experience, and I do, to be cautious about not having my own biases come through without being very careful that that's what's actually happening. For yourselves, if you hear that chanting, what that is meant to indicate is that this is a time to listen in a a way where we're not not just absorbing into the things that I'm saying, but allowing your attention to very strongly focus in your own body sense. So it's almost like the Dhamma talk time is a time for meditation. So the correct way of listening to a talk is to have 90% of your attention inward with your own mind-body sense. And 10% of it's listening to the content of the words of what I'm saying. And in that way, what happens is, is, is that the most possible opportunity, if there's something that resonates with you, you'll know because your whole body will go open and relax and kind of this aha kind of feeling. You know, and if it's not resonating, you'll know because there won't be any sense of, you know, yes or no. But also it's really important to to get that because I speak extemporaneously and I don't prepare my talks, and because I'm human, I have my own practice, and as a result, I have my own weak spots. You know, there are times where it is possible that my own biases are coming through in a way which is not supportive of you or not supportive of awakening. And so if your system goes into, you know, this is actually against what I know to be the truth, then that's also really important to register, not to ignore, but to come back to me at some point. So it might be helpful not to do it in the middle of the talk, but to somehow come back to me and check out what it was that happened for you and what it was that I meant. Because in that way what happens is we keep a kind of sacred relationship where we're all here interested in waking up and using this opportunity for that. And it's my commitment to do what I can to support that. And what I need from you is your commitment to help me in doing that. And so in that way, like at the moment, I'm the only one speaking, but there's a complete dialogue happening with each person. 
because your attention is deeply rooted in your own internal sense and your own internal responsiveness of what's actually happening as you hear me speak. Is that all right? Okay, good. You know, the topic is rich, and I think maybe what I'll start with is just my own personal experience, because that might help clarify some of the questions that have arisen. Okay, So I came to the Dhamma when I was 17. I wandered into a class at the University of California at Santa Cruz, and it was a, a class on religions of India, and the person teaching it was just talking about the philosophy of Buddhism as well as the philosophy of many other different religions of India. And when he was talking about the philosophy of Buddhism, there was something for me that was like on fire. You know, it was like somebody throwing a match on a bonfire that had been doused with kerosene and been in the Colorado dry weather for a really long time. It was just igniting. So, you know, we were in a lecture theater, you know, in a university hall, you know. And yet what he was talking about was the basic stuff that we hear on retreats in terms of the way of practice, in terms of the Four Noble Truths, in terms of the characteristics of existence, in terms of the Eightfold Path. And for me, it was a a feeling of, you know, I'd thought about some of this stuff, but obviously not to that extent. And it was like such a, both a kind of homecoming and relief and welcome. It was like, oh, yeah. You know, yeah. So after being in the class for one week, I had the sense that, well, oh, this is clear. You know, this spiritual whatever is going to be the focus of my life. That was clear. And then after being in the class for a month, I had a a vision. It was a dream, but it was so strong. I refer to it as a vision of being a nun. Now, as it turned out, it was exactly the same time of year where the nuns where I ended up ordaining were first going forth. It was the first time they were going forth at Chithurst in 1979. It was in October 1979. And I didn't know that that was happening for them until 10 years later. Okay, So I was born in California, and I come from a middle-class Jewish family, and my father is an Orthodox intellectual, and... You know, um, my mom wanted to do Christmas because she felt left out when she was the only person in the, in the neighborhood who didn't do Christmas. So we had Hanukkah and Christmas. And, you know, and for me, you know, I didn't really understand what Judaism was about until after I started practicing meditation and I got interested in it as a kind of a ceremony and ritual as a way of creating space in one's life for practice. But what happened for me when I was that young was there was a sense of, yes, absolutely yes. And so what I did from the time I was 17 was I said, all right, the world is my monastery. All right, I'm in university right now and I've got a boyfriend and I'm going to school and and then after a while I had a job. It was like I wanted it to be clear that everything that I was doing was part of my spiritual practice. And so I started going on 10-day retreats and I started having a daily practice and I felt like, you know, my practice was really strong. And then life happens and, you know, it's like, you know, you get knocked all over the place. And I remember meeting somebody who'd been on retreats. You know, he was one of these Dhamma bums where he'd been on retreats for 20 years or whatever. And and I and I and he caught me at a time when I was in quite a state. And I don't even remember what about... And he just asked me how I was, and it was like, <laughs> and he said something like, you know, it's just very quietly said, it's, you know, it's good not to take it so personally. And I thought, 
wow, you know, that's actually possible. It's actually possible. You know, it was a question and a kind of an astonishment, you know, that you can actually do this. I mean, you can actually do the practice thing and the, and the life thing. You know, you can actually put them together. So, you know, my commitment to practice never wavered. And in that class, I had heard about, you know, Ajahn Chah and Ajahn Sumedho and heard about Jack Kornfield and Joseph Goldstein and heard about Deepama. And there was just this longing to meet these people and find out, you know, who they were and what it was like hanging out with them and doing retreats with them. And and so I had in that in that in that year when I first was introduced to the Dhamma this aspiration to go on pilgrimage. So but you know and I also had this really strong sense, particularly when every time things were difficult, uh, you know, the hell with it. I'm just gonna go be a nun, you know? I'm out of here. But there was some small voice of wisdom that would keep coming back to me that said, you know, you can't do that if you're running away from anything, okay? So, you know, as a 17-year-old person, there's an awful lot of stuff that just is kind of unsorted in terms of sexuality and relationships and family and livelihood. And I mean, the list, you know, it's quite a list at 17. <laughs> so without realizing it, I had a kind of unconscious agenda that that list had to settle to a certain level. Yeah. So, you know, life continued and um, I, you know, I, I, I went on retreats and I took some time off of university and then I came back to university and I was studying science as a way of challenging my spiritual practice. So I got, I was studying biology and biochemistry because I had a really strong conviction that the Dhamma was true. In fact, I had I had no doubt, I knew absolutely that the practice worked. But because I've been raised in a family where, you know, my father in particular was very strong scientifically oriented, I also had a really strong sense, well, there's truth in science as well. So I thought, well, you know, if I study science, then maybe there'll be a way that I can put these two things together. I can understand the truth of practice as well as to see how they overlap. You know, and so you know, I'm rather somewhat idealistic. I had this, a- I had this aspiration to stay, to have the direct experience that the that the quantum chemistry and quantum physics was talking about. While I'm studying it, I'm just only slightly idealistic. <laughs> anyway. So, you know, the, you know, at a university level, it's quite demanding, and it just takes everything you've got in order to wrap your brain around the way that the equations operate, let alone to get a feeling for what it's talking about as a transcendent experience. So I graduated, and I thought that I'd failed in my mission, and then I went on a three-month retreat at IMS and realized that I hadn't. It was just that I couldn't actually hold both of those things together at the same time. So I came back from the three-month retreat and was working as, in, uh, as, a, as an analytical chemist at a, lab, a laboratory. And um, you know, when I was in high school, I was m- completely in love with somebody who was a couple years older than I was. We, were never, we never were a couple, but I was, as they say in England, besotted. 
Anyway, um, he and I ended up getting together again nine years later. And, you know, it was a, just a very, very loving, very deep relationship. It was based on a lot of friendship and a lot of... Uh, we had a lot of common commonality in terms of our love of the Dhamma. And, and then I was really in a pickle. Because I had, I had known before I met him again that I was on my way to India. So it was like I was clear I was going, you know. That was happening. And then he moved up from Los Angeles and we were living together. And it was a, a deeply loving and very satisfying relationship. And I thought, I'm nuts, you know. <laughs> I'm absolutely nuts, you know. I'm leaving this for total unknown. Why? You know, why, why would anyone want to do that? And so, you know, I held that conundrum of both being in a deeply loving relationship and also having a kind of this aspiration that had been now nine years kind of moving through me, kind of asking me to, to, to honor that. And so finally, on one retreat that we were doing together, it just became clear I had to go, you know. And even if I didn't understand why, I just knew that I had to go. And being a phenomenally... Um, mature and loving man he was incredibly supportive he knew that I had to go so I got a one-way ticket I gave away all my things I quit my job and I told everybody I don't know when I'm coming back I'll come back when I'm ready okay and part of my interest in going to Asia was to explore this nun thing because you know there were no Buddhist nuns that I knew about really anywhere around me so I did. I went to Asia, and I was traveling by myself. And, you know, India, you know, 20-something 20, 20 years ago, you know, as a woman in my 20s, my early 20s then, you know, it was like, you know, the longer I was there, the less I understood. And there's the kind of deep kind of dismantling process that was happening for me. So I've always been somebody that's felt a strong resonance with nature, so whenever I'm out of sorts, I just head for the mountains or the beach or the ocean or the stream or the rocks. Give me the rocks, you know. It's like get me out of the city because that's where I feel at home, you know, just with nature. So I had been in Nepal and, and I had a three-month visa to go to the Mahasi Center in Burma. And my system was just going nuts. It was like, you know, the worst case of spring fever I had ever in my whole life experienced and I thought if I go to Burma with this retreat center where you were meditating 20 hours a day I just I just die you know I couldn't this is no way I could do that so I thought well you know I'll, I'll go up to the mountains so I went to Dharamsala and you know I was up in Dharamsala and that's when I met the bear so I was attacked by a bear and that's what the scars on the back of my head head are that was in Dharamsala and, you know, that, that itself is a whole story. But basically, the, what happened in that, because it was such a close encounter with death, and because there was such a strong sense that it was the practice of meditation that actually supported me from being able to stay present with it during it, and that that was, in fact, the reason why I lived. That, in addition to decompressing from the shock of the experience, there was this, again, this deep-seated faith of, wow, the practice has given me my life. 
And so when I met Deepama, which was actually before that, again, there was this sense, you know, Deepama is this realized woman who was living in Calcutta at the time, and I'd heard about her in that in Jack's class. And, uh, I mean, she's awesome. And, you know, tiny, absolutely tiny physical body, but her presence was vast. And, you know, she has tremendous power. You know, she had tremendous insight. She had, she had attained tremendous psychic abilities. The stories about her are incredible. But the thing about her that just blew me away was the sense of being in this vast ocean of stillness and love. And so I thought, wow, you know, again, my aspiration was rekindled. And I thought, this is really what I want to do with my life. So I went from India and Nepal. I went to Thailand, and you know, I, I went to a because I was I got hepatitis and I was sick still. And so I thought, well, you know, I'll just go hang out on the beaches and have some fruit salad and swim in the water. And you know, people were smoking dope and walking around naked. And you know, there was just this scene. It was like I just I so did not want to be part of that. It was like you know, what I want is the Dhamma. You know, to me, my heart, there was something in me. I'd been through enough. It was like, I just wanted the Dhamma. So I went to different monasteries and visited some monasteries, and I went to the monastery that this tradition, the first Western monastery that this tradition comes from, which is known as Wat Pananacha. I had been warned about Wat Pananacha. Because Wat Pananacha, you're not allowed to ordain if you're a woman. They're just monks there. And, you know, the, the cultural bias is really, really prominent there. And so, you know, I had been warned. But I was absolutely not prepared for what happened when I got there. Because I had been living in Asia for, what, six months, eight months, you know. And that whole time I was hanging out with Asian people. But this was a place where there were only Westerners. So there were Western monks there. And there was something that, it's like when I travel, you know, there's something about me, I just go into like anthropological mode, you know, where I cease to judge or evaluate the other culture based on my own conditioning because it's not my culture. But here I was in a foreign culture with only Western people around me. And something in me just went, So it was the weirdest mixture of feeling like, on one hand, totally coming home, the peace of the place, the pristineness of the place, the depth of the practice. I felt absolutely, utterly, and totally at home. And on the other hand, I was in a state of abject rage about what it was that I was observing in terms of these cultural biases and the way they were playing out and how discordant it was with what I'd grown up with and what I knew. But because I was committed to the practice, I thought, well, this is actually conditioning. This is my conditioning. This isn't actually the reality. Okay? So I was willing to use my own practice in order to investigate what was actually happening for me there. And the result of doing that was, I said, it's time for me to ordain. So the weirdest thing was, it was in the midst of that intense cauldron of paradox, of feeling both incredibly at home and absolutely infuriated, that I thought, 
this is it. And it was the sense of, well, I understand now the Buddha's intention that the potency of monastic life is to focus one's attention in order to realize the truth and to bring every part of one's life into that experience. So, at 17, when I was at university, I had determined that the world was going to be my monastery. And I was determined that relationships and work and everything was going to be where I was going to practice. And then what happened was, is is that it shifted. And then there was the feeling, I'm going to let the monastery be my world. And so, I came, at the time I was there, there was Ajahn Amaro, who was a visiting monk from the monastery in England was there visiting and talking about us and talking about the community of nuns that was in England. And so um, he said, you know, he was sharing for a while and he asked if there were any questions. And I said, yes. And I had, you know, a hundred questions or more. And it was all about, you know, how does it work and how, you know, all of those things. And so I just said, you know, this is it. I'm going. So I wrote a letter home to my family and friends that I was on my way to the monastery in England and I would be coming home for a while and, you know, they all thought, she's lost it. (laughs) You know, and my parents, bless them, you know, that I just nearly died from getting killed by the bear. I come home and I say, I'm going to the monastery. I mean, it was really not very easy on them. (laughs) So I came home and I said hello to the family and touched in base with friends and then I went to England and um, nobody knew I was coming because the letters that I sent hadn't arrived. And so, you know, I don't know anybody. I've never been there before. I have, you know, I, the whole thing was totally foreign. And so I met the guest nun and she said, you know, I'm sorry, but we haven't received a letter or you know, we don't know that you're coming. And so I said, okay. And, 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 and I said, well, I have a confession to make. And she said, well, what is it? And I said, I'd like to ordain. And she said, well, just don't think about it. Stay here for a week and just don't think about it. So I went back to my room and I thought, you know, I've said goodbye to my boyfriend. I've given away everything that I own. I have a one-way ticket here. How is it possible for me not to think about it? <laughs> so she said, all right, think about it. <laughs> so, I, I don't know, a month or two later, I took novice precepts. But the sisters' community was, in a, was really in a state of rather um, um, quite exaggerated dysfunction. And that was that way for a very long time. But because I was, I was determined, I mean, I was absolutely determined. It felt like somebody had picked me up by the scruff of my neck and put me there and said, you stay there until you are told to do something differently. It never occurred to me to leave. Never. Until... Fast forward 15 years, and I began to see that some of my initial concern around the cultural bias that was driving me so, uh, getting me so activated and agitated, actually was not just a question of conditioning. 
It was not just a question that if we practice with this correctly, this stuff will resolve in our own hearts and minds and we'll be able to make use of this in a way that's helpful. It became clear to me that, that there were things that were happening uh, that were actually reinforcing the wrong kind of conditioning and that wrong kind of conditioning was actually creating obstacles rather than supporting awakening. So when I saw that, then it became my motivation to want to move out of these outdated cultural biases and to find ways of living the monastic life where this was not kind of the, the force that our lives were having to navigate with. And so then there were several things that happened an interest to articulate the dilemma that the sisters were in an interest that the sisters did come to some cohesiveness better understanding about this an interest to negotiate change within the monasteries we were living in and then when it became clear that it was not possible to negotiate change there then I was going to be part of the Saranaloka project I was the senior nun and I'd been wanting to go to California for about a decade and I thought well maybe we can negotiate change in California or at least create the space where we can move more in the direction that we need to. When it became clear that there was absolutely no can go, you know, absolutely no, I said, thank you, brothers. I love you very much, and I'm out of here. And so that was, uh, I had that clarity in October of last year, and in July no, October of 2008 and July of 2009, I left England and came here. Okay. My intention in coming here is, is to create a monastic community that is committed to moving out of some of these outdated cultural biases that have been passed down throughout the generations and committed to creating a, a, a situation where the lay in the monastic community can collaboratively find ways of supporting each other in their practice and awakening. Now, let me go back a little bit. You know, I thought I was a way cool meditator. You know, I had all kinds of impressions about how strong my meditation practice was. And I was really impressed with how much I suffered when I went into the monastery. Part of it, I think, is correct assessment that it was partly because the monastery was dysfunctional. And part of it was because, as a lay person, it's really remarkable the levels to which one can deceive oneself. <laughs> Speaking personally, it was remarkable the levels to which I had been able to deceive myself in terms of the sense of my own personal practice and what I was actually up to in contrast with reality. So one of the reasons why I found the monastic practice so powerful was because it is a very clear and tight container which, when it is functioning well, mirrors for you exactly the stuff that you don't want to see. <laughs> which, by nature, then has elements on it which are uncomfortable. Yeah. As the sisters spent more time together, you know, I really think the sisters have done a remarkable job in terms of dealing with insurmountable difficulties in some ways and finding skills and tools and resources to negotiate inwardly as well as collaboratively as a group of sisters in a situation that didn't really understand what it was that we were trying to work with and have much empathetic resonance with our dilemma. As we matured, 
our ability to hold a space where we could support each other to do their own ground increased remarkably. And as that increased, our own ability to go into stuff, which is our own personal work, that held in a community that understood what it was that we were doing, then supported each person to do that. Okay? As a result of my own personal experience, I still have a sense of conviction that spiritual community has tremendous potential in it. Even though what I've lived through has obviously had some edges to it, which, as they say in England, are somewhat unsavory. (laughs) So, that's part of my own personal conviction. And that's part of my own personal story. In the early days when I was in the monastery, you know, there was a really strong sense that, you know, if you were really serious about your practice, you would ordain. And that was the message that would come through in Dhamma Talks. And that was the kind of like, you know, we're cool. You know, we have ordained. You know, we've got it together. We've got our practice together. We've got our sila together. And we've got it together, you know. And then what happened after, I don't know how many years, was one realizing that, first of all, that's not helpful. And second of all, it's not even accurate. And there are plenty of lay people whose practice is much more mature and uh, than many monastics. And so it's not useful to separate out and say, well, this is the good way and this is the lesser way, but if you must, you know, be a lay person kind of thing. What's helpful is to say, you know, wherever you are in your life, what's important is to be clear that if you're wanting not to suffer, then practice is a really potent way of understanding how suffering is arising and starting to dismantle the stuff that actually creates that. So what I have come to understand is is that the role of a community in supporting each other in this kind of work can be paramount in the individual person's capacity to be able to do the work. And the reason why is because for many of us, you know, if I gave you a paper and asked you to write down the things about yourself that you found were, you know, lacking, or you had your shortcomings, you know, it would be one, two, three, four, five, six, ten pages, you know. We would have no, no lack of ability to articulate everything about us that's not okay. But if I gave you out paper and asked you to write down what your goodness is, you know, what your virtue is, what your nobility is, you know, what happens? You know, I did that to one person. I asked her to contemplate her own goodness. And she looked at me like I just asked her to clean out the septic system without blood <laughs> on or something. You know, just totally revolted, you know. And so one of the ways that a community functions is, is that it helps support and mirrors each other's goodness. Okay? It's essential that we are connected to our own goodness in order to be able to do this kind of work. Because it is not insignificant work. It's not just a question of tidying things up. It's a question of a profound reorientation in the way that we're relating to ourselves and to the nature of experience. And 
In order to actually do that, it requires being able to dismantle the way in which our identification processes have formed, as well as learn how to support all the things that actually support uh, practice and uh, a healthy life, a healthy livelihood. It's inevitable in meditation that we deal with fear, and it's inevitable that we also deal with resistance. Because resistance is the kind of stuff that's keeping us from opening up to what it is that needs to be seen. And most of us don't go there. I mean, in my own personal experience, there was a time, you know, it was a series of things that happened. And it was like, you know, my worst nightmare. And it's like I was... I so desperately did not want to face the things that I was being asked to face. And I was trying everything to get out of having to just look at what was going on. But I knew I couldn't run anywhere. Where was I going to go? You know. And at that point, I was desperate to disrobe. But then I thought, well, if I disrobe now, the only thing that happens is I'm a, a quivering, gelatinous pulp without robes. You know, how is that going to help? You know. And so, but it was because I was I was cornered and. I could see that there was no place, there was no situation, there was no circumstance that was going to be able to sort it out other than just focusing on what was happening for me and attending to it, that I stopped fighting. But in order to stop fighting, I need to have confidence in the practice. And in order to have confidence in the practice, I needed to develop a lot of resource of being able to have access of where I felt comfortable and where I felt grounded and where I felt peaceful and where I felt relaxed. And so when we're dealing with these kinds of things like fear or resistance or whatever, then what's helpful is to have a gentle way of working with it both from being able to support the conditions moving in a way more towards balance as well as understanding that essentially what knows fear is not frightened and what knows resistance isn't resisting so the awareness which knows is different than the object that is known And so it was exactly that which was the thing that shifted my attention when that experience was so terrifying with the bear, of resting in awareness. And it was that that allowed me to stay present and conscious during something which, you know, it doesn't take too much imagination to think that it might be a little bit on the hard side. You know? But that is where my conviction in the practice is. But what I have seen in answering the question of the future of Buddhism is is that unless there is the willingness to look at some of the structures that have gotten solidified around the identity of Buddhism and see how much of this is encapsulated, outdated cultural biases and how much of this is actually based on essential dharma and move towards that which is essential dharma, I don't think it's going to survive. And I don't think it's going to have much value. So for me, what I'm interested in is a new model, a new paradigm, 
that is not interested in solidifying the old identity, but taking the essential teachings and the purity that comes when one can see the nature of the truth and have that be a basis from which new structures emerge. And that's what I feel committed to doing. So when I left England, I left with nothing. You know, I had no idea, no clue, no support, no community, nothing. You know, I didn't have money. I didn't have anything. But I had confidence that the practice works. And I had an absolute willingness to put myself in this kind of, I don't know what, total unknown situation and see if something will emerge through my being willing to just be there with the uncertainty of not knowing. And that's what I'm doing. So, I don't know if this touches some of the questions that you had, you know, in terms of monastic life and lay life and the value and all the rest of that. But maybe we can start here in terms of this part of it, and then we can open up, and so you can have more time of direct questioning. But again, I want to go back to what I said in the beginning. The point of speaking in this way is to speak in a way that supports truth. If what you have heard resonates with you, then you can trust that it's your own internal truth that's actually in resonance. If it has no resonance, then just let it go. But if I've said something in a way that actually goes against your deepest understanding of the truth, don't just let it go. Somehow get back in touch with me and, and have some kind of a feedback about what happened and what it was that I said. Okay? So what I'd like to suggest is that we take maybe a five-minute stand stretch do whatever we need to do time, and then come back here and shift the format to a kind of interactive discussion one. Okay, thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.